Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Jared M. Spool is the founder of User Interface Engineering, UIE, and a co-founder of Center Center. He's been working in the field of usability and experience design since 1978, before the term usability was ever associated with computers. In this episode, you'll hear about how Jared wrote some of the first personal computer software for office-based systems, the backstory of creating his businesses, and some advice for designers just getting started. We'll pick up the conversation with host Laura Federoff talking to Jared about how he began his career. But I was just fascinated by libraries and how libraries were put together. And, and uh, in fact, in my, one of my first jobs was working for the school library. And the school library also had the school computers. So I became a software developer when I was at high school and learned how to, how to program by the time I graduated high school or left high school. I never really... How'd you do that? Uh, how'd I learn how to program? Yeah, like what resources did you have to... Books, lots of books. It, it was all books. So I worked in just... the library taught yourself yeah okay. pretty much there's no web you couldn't look things up just had the books there were a couple of magazines uh, byte magazine was one of them computer language magazine was one of them i, I really loved those magazines um but yeah no i taught myself how to program that's impressive did you have friends also that were interested in or were you kind of just like shut your bedroom door and you're all like hunkered down no no there was a there was a small group of us who uh uh were interested in it but i think i was the most fanatical about it and so yeah when i was in high school i wrote the school scheduling system for scheduling classes and i wrote the school report card system um (laughs) and uh, i never i never gave myself a false grade in the report card system though i did manage to end up um, with uh, three years of medical excuse instead of having to take phys ed. Very nice. <laughs> yes. Very nice. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I left high school as a, as a software developer, uh, got a job writing software. And would tell me about that first job you got. I was working for a couple of folks in, in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts that had this little software company that made uh, business systems. So general ledger, accounts receivable, accounts payable, financial systems for, for medium-sized businesses, companies that, that had you know 200 employees, something like that. And it all ran on data general, micronovas, and prime mini computers. And so I... I wrote software for these things. The business was also connected to an Apple dealership. The same owners owned an Apple store, and they sold Apple IIs. And I was fascinated by the Apple II, and I went and got myself one and started uh, programming on that. I had previously used a TRS-80, which was also a personal computer, um, and had written some software that I sold for that. And this was all when I was 18 years old. That's crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's nuts. I was actually productive back then. <laughs> How did you sell the software? Like, what did you do? My parents had a friend of the family who was a, a shrink. And uh, I don't know if it was some desperate attempt to keep me off the streets or, or some plea from my mother, which it probably was. Uh, but uh, he said, well, Jared, why don't you come and build me a piece of software to run uh, my, my practice with? And so I wrote you know, an accounting system, you know, what would today be QuickBooks that didn't exist back then, this being 1977, 19, yeah, 1977. Uh, I wrote 
this thing and I wrote it by just looking at how he kept his books and mimicked it and just okay so if he did it here I did it there and I, I knew nothing about accounting uh, when I worked in Worcester I, I then I, I went to classes at Worcester State in accounting aced them and I loved them because I was learning at night this stuff about accounting practices all this double entry bookkeeping what's a debit what's a credit what's an account receivable what's a payable I was learning all this stuff and my day job was programming it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this, there's actually a reason why I do it this way. So, and I was just fascinated by that. And I just loved it. So the computer store that we were working at decided that they wanted to build a word processor on a DG Micronova, which was this small-end mini-computer system. And uh, the only word processors at the time were the Wang word processors and the digital equipment word processor, the, the deck whip system. And, and we had a deck whip system. And, and so I just sort of, again, just by mimicking, figured out how to build a word processor. And I built a word processor for the Micronova. And they sold that a bunch. And I ended up getting a job for Digital Equipment Corporation to work on a brand new personal computer project that they had uh, that was going to be based on, on little PDP-11 chips. And they hired me to write the word processor for that. And so I ended up uh, writing another word processor and then writing an email client and then writing the world's first voicemail client and then doing a bunch of things of that ilk, working with the spreadsheet developers. And um, so I I worked on some of the first personal computer software, office-based systems. What was that like? Oh, it was was crazy back then. I mean, we were all making stuff up and we were having to figure it out. And, 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 you know, if I wanted to to take a character from the keyboard and display it on the screen at the end of a word. I had to write the code that read, scanned the keyboard, figured out which character it was, figured out where in the word processor buffer it belonged, figured out where the word processor buffer needed to be updated on the screen, figured out how to get the character on the screen, what pixels to light up in the display. You know, fonts, everything. None of that was built into the operating system. We had to do all of that, and we had to make sure that it would work with fast typists. So we would go out and we would go to these these typing pools where there were people who could type 135 words a minute. And we would put our stuff in front of them, and we would watch the software just dismally crash as the, you know, the letters just could not keep up. Right. And then we'd go back and we'd optimize and we'd close the loop and we'd come back. And we eventually got it so that people who typed at 135 minutes, words per minute could actually... It, the software could keep up with them, but we had to write every piece of code that, wow. that did everything. And while I was at DAC, there was a group of people who had just been hired to do this stuff that they called software human factors. And the software human factors stuff was basically the beginning of what we would today refer to as user research or usability testing. Their job was to figure this out. And and there were people there um, in that team. Uh, Sandy Jones, who, who inevitably invented contextual inquiry. Dennis Wixon, who created a lot of the thinking today. He's been a keynote speaker at UPA and whatnot, and Kai. Uh, he was at Microsoft for a long time. He's now at University of Santa Cruz. John Whiteside, who sort of really defined what user research and usability and, and user experience was about. And this was back in 1979, 1980, 1981. We were doing the first usability tests that had ever been done on software. We were doing, we had to figure out how you create a usability test lab. We built one from scratch. And What and did it look like? 
It looked like a janitor's closet because it was basically we kidnapped a janitor's closet. And we put a, a, a one-way mirror in and we lit one half and we darkened the other half. And we had all this TV studio equipment that we were using to do the video. And cameras mounted on the wall with remote controls and all of this stuff. And then we were making up protocols. We, we were making up how do, you, how do you conduct a usability test. We did some of the first Wizard of Oz studies. We did all this stuff. It was crazy stuff. I mean, it's back in the day, we were just inventing everything. The consent forms that, that people use today, we, we had to invent. And we had to figure out, well, what do you say to people when you start a session? Right. How do you recruit? How do you do any of that? Nobody had ever done this before. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> do you have a picture of that first lab? That no, because so at the fun. time we didn't think it was... Well, for one thing, I wasn't into photography then, and cameras were sort of... Ex- weren't easy. It's not like, you know, you carry one in your pocket all the time. I don't know. We never thought of it as a special place. I know I had a camera back then because to have a camera inside the building, I had to have a special camera pass. Oh my. You were not, as an employee, you were not allowed to bring cameras into the building unless you had a pass. But because we were operating all this video equipment, we had to have a camera pass. That must be so fulfilling to know that you're on the forefront of all of that. It makes me feel really old. <laughs> and I hear the you know I hear the kids today whining about stuff and I'm like get off my yard my lawn you you weren't there you don't know how hard it was we had to carry the equipment up up the stairs each way so what what was the next step in your career oh I went on to do more software uh, with this sort of real interest in in systems and and people and and user research and I got involved in the ACM SIGCHI community uh, and I went to the early conferences, the first ones, and, and uh, really sort of fell in love with this whole group of people, this whole tribe that was forming at the time of people who were studying how to build software that was easy to use. This was, this was just new and novel. You know, up until that point, software was built to meet requirements that were defined by, you know, business people. And, and the idea of building something for users it was just a, a, a really novel idea. And so I went on to do that, and I worked at a couple of companies who had some amazing technologies and, and things like that. And, and then uh, in 1988, I started user interface engineering. What made you start that? I mean... I got fired from my last job. Oh, why? Uh, the official reason was, was a dress code violation. Uh, I apparently had been caught walking around my own office in my socks. And so they decided that was a dress code violation. The uh, unofficial reason I was told later was that uh, you're really not supposed to go around telling everybody that your boss is a complete asshole. Oh. Well, I, the way it was put to me was <laughs> you, you're not supposed to do that even when he is a complete asshole. But what a blessing that was. I mean, obviously, you started this amazing company. Um, yes, yes. I, not on purpose. Well, what were the early days like? Actually, the, the very next day after getting fired, someone who I'd worked with at that company, he was an independent consultant who had done work there, and he had said, you know, if you ever want to leave here, if you ever find yourself, you know, looking someplace else, give me a call. So, like, the night I got fired, I gave him a call. And he was like, yes, show up tomorrow. So I ended up uh, doing a project right away for him. It was a, it was a backup system for Banyan Networks. Okay. <laughs> so I, I did the design work on this... Uh, automatic backup and restore basically something that was very similar to apple's time machine but back in the back in the 80s and i ended up just consulting and contracting and doing that for a couple years and then in 
1992, I hired my first employee, which was Carolyn Snyder. And uh, um, so it was four years that I was on my own. In that four-year time, did you create a vision of what you wanted the company to become? I think it was, I was always interested in, in work that evolved around usability testing. You know, I'd had at this point more usability testing experience than most other people on the planet. So I was interested in, in seeing if there was a way to bring usability testing to companies that couldn't afford it, that perceived that you had to have this big lab and this big stuff. So I'd, I'd been doing a lot with sort of portable usability testing stuff. Uh, what at the time was being bandied about as discount usability. The idea was to, to bring the cost uh, basically, the key is the cost per participant, right? So to bring the cost per participant down. How low was it? Do you remember? I think we got it down to $75 a participant, not including remuneration. Okay. It didn't have to be very expensive. And so what was your portable usability testing equipment? Or oh, what? It, was, you, it was it was, it was this jury-rigged system. It wasn't like I had this super briefcase that had everything packed up. It was, it was basically off-the-shelf video cameras and uh, stuff I might rent. We would keep it very simple. I wrote my own software logging tool because there's nothing like Moray out there or, or Silverback at the time. So I just, I wrote one in Visual Basic and we used that to, to log usability test events and track them and map them against the, the video. But yeah, everything was very crude. So then you would obviously take all the data and put it together in a presentation and bring it back to them. Is that kind of how? Yeah, it yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd sort of collect up all the, all the comments and categorize them. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of what we were doing at the time was figuring out, well, how do software teams need this? And putting that all together and, and showing them to people and, and saying, does this help you? And they're like, yeah, that's really helpful. Or no, that's, that's not useful at all. So I'd go off and do it again. Oh, you would? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you make recommendations based on your knowledge and experience and what you learned from the testing? Yeah, I, I've never been a big fan of making recommendations. I always felt I was like the least equipped person in the room to make the recommendations, that it was always better to me that the team themselves come up with the recommendations. So I just wanted to present stuff. But the, uh, the clients would ask for recommendations, and they'd uh, sometimes get frustrated if I didn't give them. And, but I, I never found it very satisfying because I always felt like the recommendations I was making were not taking into account. Having been on the software development side and knowing what that was like, it's like, well, I don't know how hard or easy this is to do. I don't know what your, your code base is like or, or what's there. So I'm not going to make any assumptions about what you can do. So, so for me to say, these are the top five things you need to change and here's how you should change them, felt to me to be presumptuous. Mm -hmm. So I, I was more about saying, these are the things users are, are stumbling over. And if your goal is to get users to do X, they're not doing that. I, it, it occurred to me very early that, that I would have better results if I could get the team to participate in the usability test than if I did them off on my own. And how did you get them to participate? Uh, well, I, that's how I pitched the project. This okay. is how we're going to do this. And for most of them, they were fascinated by the idea. And remember, this was all new and novel to these folks. They had never heard of this before. The idea of doing it was just... Radical. Radical and intriguing. So there, there was no... There was no preconception that, you know, you hire this team who will do this stuff and produce this result. That came later when people who were used to big companies 
having teams or having consultants who did this would then call us and, and say, this is how we've done it before. We want to do it this way again. And we would say, no, we're not interested in doing it that way. And they'd say, well, then we're not going to hire you. I'm like, okay. So you stuck to your guns. Yeah, I, I never really liked that the, that business. It's for one thing, it raises the cost per participant, and uh, the other thing is 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 again, I felt like I was the least qualified person to be making these assumptions. Like you're wasting your money by having me do this. Everything that we've ever done at User Interface Engineering has been a hundred percent guaranteed. Uh, we tell every client, every contract, every. Every time someone gives us money, it's basically you're you're completely guaranteed. If you're not happy, we'll give you your money back. Producing recommendations that people don't follow, that's a recipe for people not being happy. Right? And you know, what'd they pay for if they're not gonna follow the recommendations? So I, I wasn't interested in, in doing that. So I you know, I can't guarantee giving you recommendations that you will follow. And I'm not interested in giving you recommendations you're not gonna follow. That seems like a waste of your money. So I, I'm not going to do it. So how did you evolve the company? Like, how did you grow it? The company evolved. So Carolyn came on, and we started doing more projects. And we were doing a lot. So right around 92, 93, 94, um, we were now neck deep in, in Windows 3, which came out in 91. And so we started doing a lot of usability testing around Windows 3 applications. We would do them for a variety of companies. So all these companies were diving in and nobody knew what to do. And, and they were running into these complexity walls and usability testing became easier to sell to them. And, and we started to see all these, these patterns with how people used Windows apps. If you did the toolkits or if you actually did things the way Microsoft did them, there were all these usability problems that would crop up that were present all the time. And so I did a presentation at a software developers conference on these design patterns that we kept seeing and the, and the problems they were causing. And suddenly that became a really popular topic and we started to amass this stuff. So it, it grew from a, a short presentation to a longer presentation, to a half day workshop, to a full day workshop. And suddenly we, we were finding ourselves actually making more money teaching about these design problems that that were propping up in Windows than we were actually doing the research work to find the design problems. So we sort of, the business sort of evolved into this sort of company where we go out and we do a bunch of work for clients to uncover these things and then we publish what we learned to everybody else and that'll help us get more clients and it was this nice sort of system that fed itself and it worked really well. When did you develop your vision for the company when did that happen and has that kind of stayed intact throughout the years or have you like shifted and pivoted along the way uh we have what we call the 100 year mission and that came out in the in the in the late 90s so we were about 15 years old when we when we pushed that too there were two catalysts for that uh one is that there was a popular book it had been pushed into my face that i'd read called Built to Last. And Built to Last talked about all these companies that, that survived, you know, more than 75 years, comparing them against direct competitors that had started about the same time in the same markets, uh, but didn't survive all that time. And that book was was very much a seminal book for stuff. And it, and it, and it helped me with it with a problem, which was 
that we were really unfocused in terms of where we were going. And, and the book basically said, look, all the most successful companies have a very clear focus. They have this, this plan that actually will take a century for them to accomplish. And that was sort of a common thing. So I started thinking, well, okay, so what would, what would our plan be if it took more than a century? And right at the same time, uh, what had happened was that my then wife passed away and she had died primarily because uh, the computer systems at the insurance company had decided that, that the, her condition was not ever going to be cured and they canceled all her therapies and her quality of life diminished very fast and, and before we could get a human involved uh, to review her case... Uh, she had degraded to a point where she was then had uh, caught a, uh, a a bacterial infection. It was the same same thing that killed Jim Henson, and it's a nasty little thing that takes 24 hours to kill you, but 48 hours to diagnose. So we didn't know what had happened. You know, she, you know, she went in the hospital for what we thought was a routine kidney infection, and then she never came out. And you know, in sort of processing what that was like. Uh, I had come to realize that, that, you know, part of what killed her were computer systems, computer systems that were just poorly designed. And they were new systems, and, they, and, and I had been spending, you know, the last decade watching people be really frustrated by new computer systems. And so, so that, those two things sort of coming together, we formulated this plan. And the plan originally was, you know, that we would figure out a way to eliminate all of the, the frustration that comes from the introduction of new technology. We call that the 100-year mission. Uh, subsequently, we've updated it to be uh, something simpler, which is to just eliminate all the bad design from the world. And, uh, but we still think it takes about 100 years. And we're, at this point, about 15 years into the mission. So that, that was really where where the thinking was coming from at that point was this, this idea. So, so then, you know, okay, so eliminating bad design, what does that mean? Well, the first thing we need to do is understand what bad design is and where does bad design come from? And then what causes bad design? How do you start fixing that? And over the last 15 years, we've, I think we've made some good progress. We, we, we now know that bad design is really a people problem and that as a people problem, you can eliminate it through education and sort of culture and structure. The sources of bad design now are really educational issues. They're, they're cultural issues. They're structural issues. They're not because there's something ingrained in, in the human condition that creates bad design. Bad design actually comes from a lack of understanding of good design. That was, that's very clear today. Uh, it wasn't clear in 1996. We didn't understand that. So that's, that's where we were at. So, so all of a sudden, we were now sort of focused on, okay, well, education is going to be a big part of what we do. Design literacy is going to be a big part of what we do. Um, we had just started looking at the web at that point. And so we wanted to understand what is the difference between good web design and, good, and bad web design. So we started to, to measure this in ways that were more than just sort of sight-of-the-day aesthetics, you know, back in... Back when the web first came out, there were all these website of the day sites that would, would you know, hey, look at this cool thing. But they weren't, they were just assessed on, you know, how could you use HTML in a way that no one had seen it before. 
and they weren't about good usability. And so we started to look at things from a usability standpoint. We ended up uh, publishing our first report on that topic in uh, 1997 and then, and then just kept going from there and, and focused primarily on the web because it was a nice constrained laboratory to start looking at, at bad design. Were most or all of the measures that you used back then similar to what we use today? Yeah, they were cruder. They were cruder. We have a, we have a much more nuanced notion of, of this. We focused on information retrieval initially, and then we moved to um, transactions. And in transactions, we focused on e-commerce. And the main reason for the move to, to e-commerce for us was it, it was easy to measure success. We could determine success, right? In e-commerce, you have the user's goal and you have the business's goal. The business's goal is to sell you something. The user's goal is to buy something. Those were, those were the conditions we were interested in. We weren't, we weren't as interested at when we were doing e-commerce stuff in uh, people who were browsing with no intention to buy. So we were interested in just people who were ready to buy and, and wanted to, and people who were ready to sell and wanted to. And the beauty of that is, is I know exactly when both of those conditions occur. I can, I can tell you the exact moment that those happen. And for other types of success, that's really hard. So, you know, one of our clients over the years has been the National Cancer Institute. And they have all this amazing information on what is cancer, how does it affect your life, uh, what, what are your options, what, what clinical trials are there. And how do you measure success for them, right? What, I, I know that when Best Buy sells us a camera that they feel they've been successful. Getting out of the National Cancer Institute, how do you know you're successful? It's actually really hard. And then when you're talking about someone who, whose loved one has just been diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer, uh, what is success of using the cancer.gov website for that person at that moment, right? I, I, I don't know what that is, right? I, I can't tell you that point where we go from not successful to successful, like I can in e-commerce. And so it was, it was just, it was just a, a convenience that we sort of honed in on e-commerce because we needed something to be able to measure success so that we could then say things that aren't successful are worse designs than things that are successful. And we couldn't do that with uh, a lot of the client work we were working on because we didn't know how, we didn't know how to measure success. And, and I think now we are much better at measuring success. I think, I think if we talk to the people at the National Cancer Institute, we can get a lot of different nuanced success factors that they believe are measurable. And we could get from someone who is, is in the context of dealing with understanding cancer and what it means to them, uh, a whole bunch of success criteria that we could then use to measure the site. Uh, but we couldn't do that in 1997 or, you know, 2001. Uh, we, it's, it's taken us a long time. Well, what's this new crazy wrangling unicorns thing? <laughs> the wrangling <laughs> unicorns thing. So, so uh, you must be talking about the job position I posted today. Yes. Uh, so, so to sort of continue on this education thing, to sort of start at the beginning, the... the, the so for the last, you know, 26 years, been working with lots of companies, 
thousands of clients and I get people talking to me all the time. I'm having, I'm finally getting design sold in my organization. People understand it. People know what it is. Uh, but I can't find designers and designers have been getting harder and harder and harder to hire over the last decade. And, and by designers, you mean? I mean, people who can design websites or apps or kiosks or, you know, services or, or whatever. You know, design is, is, is the rendering of intent, right? So to some extent, everybody designs. But there are, there's a bunch of skills about how to bring to the table uh, all these, particularly in the area of, of, of digital things, uh, uh, you bring to the table all these different things we do so that we can structure the information so you can find it, so that we can visually present it in a way that communicates effectively uh, so that we can actually measure the success of that and looking at all the different pieces of that. And getting people who know how to do all that stuff is getting harder and harder and harder. So a few years back, I, I was having dinner with a, a woman named Molly Holschlag. She's been a force in the web design world for, for decades, since the beginning. And she's written 40 books on web design and, and HTML and stuff. She fought all the browser wars. She actually went to work for Microsoft to help get them onto the standards track. And she, she you know, she's done just amazing stuff over here. And she was, she was visiting us and, and we we're having dinner in this little Chinese restaurant in Boston. And, and I was saying, look, it's just, it's getting harder and harder. All the, all these companies are trying to hire designers. There are no designers to be hired. They're all, all the designers that are any good are entrenched in jobs that they like. Because uh, if not, they just quickly get sucked up by somebody else. So, you know, it's almost impossible. And there are no schools that are producing designers in the quantities that we need them. Um, I, you know, I'd estimated that, that we were going to need 10,000 or 20,000 designers uh, within, you know, five years. And there were not, there's no, no place where there were 20,000 designers. And, and, you know, someone needs to start a school, is what I said. And, and Molly said, that should be you. And I said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> she says, yeah, you're perfect for it. And so that was what it was. And the original name was Project Insanity. And Project Insanity uh, uh, was basically a project to figure out what it would take to build a school. And part of the charter of Project Insanity was that I was going to go talk to all my good friends who are really smart and explain to them that Molly said I should start a school and have them do what good friends do, which is look me in the eyes and say, that's a stupid idea. If this was a good idea, someone would have done it already. There's good reasons why no one has done it already. So, so you should not do this. Right. And so I would go out and I would meet my friends and I would tell this to them. And, and, and that's not what they would say. The, the biggest thing I learned from this was that I have no good friends. <laughs> the, the, uh, nobody would take me aside and say, Jared, this is a stupid idea. Don't do this. Every single one of them said, this sounds brilliant. You need to go do this. I thought, oh, damn it. How, do, how did I end up with this crappy group of friends? Uh, one of them, a guy named Dan Rubin, also been around from the beginning, done some amazing stuff, visual designer. Uh, he said to me, he says, if you talk to Leslie, uh, I, I said, well, you know, I've known Leslie for a while. She's talking about Leslie Jensen Inman, who, who 
was a friend of both of ours. And I said, I, you know, I, not lately. And, and he says, you need to talk to Leslie. Okay, why? He says, well, you just need to go talk to her. And Leslie at the time was, was getting her EDD, which is an educational equivalent of a PhD. She was getting that at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And her thesis was on creating a web design curriculum, but I didn't know that. She had been teaching at the university, and a few days later, uh, I see a tweet from her that says, I've uh, just given notice at the University of Tennessee, and I'm looking forward to the next chapter of my life, wherever that might take me. And so I sent her a DM and said, uh, hey, we've got to talk. And within 15 minutes, we were having a phone conversation, and uh, that sort of changed history for both of us. Uh, she's now my partner on this thing uh, that's called Center Center, though it's a nickname for a long time while we were in stealth mode was, uh, we changed it from Project Insanity to the Unicorn Institute. And uh, now that we're out of stealth mode, it's Center Center. That's what it is. So the thing you were talking about, the Unicorn Wranglers, is uh, our first faculty. So we have, we have two types of faculty. We have guest industry instructors who come in and teach. There's 30 courses over the two-year curriculum. So they'll come in and they'll teach. Uh, they'll kick off with a two-day workshop. But most of, the, most of the education comes from this team of what we call, officially we call them facilitators, who facilitate the student's education. Uh, but the uh, unofficial name is Unicorn Wranglers. And so uh, that name sort of just stuck. So that's what the job ads all say, as they say, come be a unicorn wrangler. Are the classes in person? Are they online? They're in person. Okay. They're, 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 it's a two-year full-time curriculum. It'll be in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we have classroom space down there. We've, the whole city is opening their doors for us. It's really exciting. And uh, it's going to be really awesome. Are you moving there? I will probably get an apartment there. And so I'll probably be shifting, because I still have user interface engineering in Boston, so right. I'll probably be shifting back and forth, though I'm learning the, the new and novel ways to get Skype to crash. Right. And uh, we use <laughs> Skype a lot. Uh, it actually, when it, between crashes, it works really well. Yeah, I've noticed that too. <laughs> well, what advice would you give designers? I'm sure there's a lot, but what's one of the golden nuggets that you have? What advice would I give designers? Who are just getting started. Who are just getting yeah. started. I would probably give them uh, advice. Um, spend a lot of time watching your users. Spend a lot of time. If you, if you had to divide your time up between creating designs and watching users, watching users should be a minimum of 50%, if not more. Your designs will be wholly better the more users you watch. So, so the more time you spend watching users, the better. If you're not spending any time watching users, then you need to start doing some and start spending time doing that because that's really how you learn what the difference is between good design and bad design is you put something out there with an intention that it's going to work, but then you see that it doesn't quite work the way you intended and you have to make changes and you do it again you make changes you do it again and in that process you learn the basic principles of what works and what doesn't and so that's that's really the the best way to do that so what would you like your legacy to be 
I don't know. I, I don't think in terms of legacy. I, I, I imagine going on forever. There, there's an old uh, saying, which is, I, uh, God put me on this earth to accomplish something, and at the rate I'm going, I'll live forever. My to-do list certainly feels that way. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's too early to be thinking about... Uh, uh, no, you know what my legacy is? Making this podcast with you. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well, thank you. Something I've always wanted to do. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on UX Radio. Thank you for having me. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. From the design of our workspace to the events at our buildings, we do everything we can to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. Every WeWork location is staffed with community managers who work directly with members to understand their business needs, struggles, and growth plans, and connect them to other members who can help. Events are an integral part of the WeWork experience, from product launches to elevator pitches. Whether you're asking for advice, looking for product feedback, or just meeting like-minded entrepreneurs, WeWork.com is a seamless extension to the community. For more information, go to WeWork.com. That's WeWork.com. Go to WeWork.com slash UX Radio to receive a discount now. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.